All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Um, again, I said this just a moment ago, but uh, Christmas and, I mean, we just, we just celebrated Thanksgiving and, and now uh, all the Christmas decorations are going up and, and, and we're anticipating really getting into just celebrating the incarnation of, of Christ Jesus. And, and these are wonderful times of celebration. I love love, love this time of year. Um, but they can also, for many of us, be, be the seasons of, of heightened despair. Uh, they, can, they can be seasons for a lot of us of, of just these added uh, or amplified sufferings, these amplified, if you will, um, afflictions. And, and for some of you, the holidays, it just doesn't feel like a time uh, that, that you can uh, really celebrate. It's, it's a very difficult time for you. They, these, this time of year may amplify, like I said, your anxieties. It may amplify depression for some of you. It may amplify loneliness for some of you. Um, holiday seasons may even remind you of, of the loss of, of a loved one or, or even maybe the distance between you and your loved ones, just physical distance or, or even just emotional distance between you and loved ones. And, um, and I, and along with the other pastors here, we've observed uh, just over the last several years, really, uh, this is a, a heightened season for uh, uh, counseling loads, really. Like our, our counseling is... Um, is, is a lot heavier this time of year than it typically is. And, and I think that this may be one of the, the reasons why. And so this morning, what I want to do is just speak to our local body about how, how sufficient the Scriptures are for you, how sufficient the Scriptures are for those of you that are struggling and for those of you that, that are, are presently suffering this morning. I want you to see the, the, the comfort that, that the Scriptures can provide for you. Uh, I think probably many of us in this room, I wouldn't have to spend a lot of time trying to convince you, maybe some of you, but, but I would venture to say maybe most of you, I don't have to convince that, that the Scripture is God-breathed, right? That, that, that God Himself wrote this book using uh, human authors. I probably don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you on that, but, but what I probably do have to spend some time just waiting through for you is that because the Scriptures are written by God, because they're God-breathed, they really are sufficient. They really are profitable. They really actually are useful and tangible and beneficial for your life, for the life of a believer, uh, I think that many of us, we treat Scripture uh, the same way that we like treat assembly instructions, right? We buy this product in the mail, the product comes in, and it's, it's, it's not assembled, and we got to assemble it. And, and especially us men, we pull out the instructions, we look at them, we acknowledge their authority, then we throw them off to the side and say, I don't need that because I'm a man. And, uh, and then we, uh, we spend an entire afternoon um, saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, and... Um, <clears throat> And then after a very, very just frustrating afternoon, we go back, we pick up the assembly instructions, we finally read them, realize they are in fact profitable for the task at hand, and then we utilize them. We unfortunately, 
right? That's just man-written stuff, right? We unfortunately treat the very words of God, I, I fear, that way in our own lives. We may acknowledge that He's the author, that the Scriptures are in fact sufficient, but how does that animate us? How does that, how does that affect our day-in and day-out lives? How does that affect the way that we suffer? How does that affect the way we persevere and, and endure in the midst of suffering? And so I, wanna, I want you to see this morning how the sufficiency of Scripture intersects with your actual life, okay? And, uh, and a quick caveat this morning, there's many of you that are wrestling with anxiety and you're wrestling with depression, and you do so at this biological level, right? And, and I want you to know, and I want you to hear it from the pulpit, medications can help you. Medications can help you. You shouldn't be ashamed to take medication. And, and my sermon this morning isn't talking about how Scripture cures you of biological depressions and anxieties. I thank God for modern medicine. I thank God for physicians that have spent an immense amount of time studying, and, and, and they care about you, and they love you, and they, they prescribe medication at this bi- uh, biological level, level and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But what I want you to see this morning is that the Scriptures can tangibly help you in the midst of suffering, and some of you may need medication as well. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're talking about suffering, and we're looking in Lamentations chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own one, take that, keep it, read it, be changed for God's glory because of it. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of background because we're not going to read the entire book, and some of you may be unfamiliar with the book of Lamentations, but most scholars agree that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, and it's this collection, if you will, of five poems that is a response to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians around 587-ish B.C., okay? Uh, Jeremiah, if you were to read the book of Jeremiah, he had been prophesying and prophesying and prophesying about this coming judgment for around 40 years, okay? The judgment that God called him to warn about to Jerusalem, it finally happens, And so what we're getting in Lamentations in in poetry form really is is Jeremiah writing out, if you will, his emotions about this whole ordeal. It's it's almost his way of, of, of counseling himself through immense suffering. It's his way of counseling himself through just immense grief and and, and immense even even trauma. And and while this book is is about God judging a nation. I want to acknowledge that that there are those who suffered in Jerusalem who were innocent, okay? It wasn't that they were without sin, but they weren't being judged along with everyone else for their personal sin, right? In other words, they suffered not because of personal sin. They suffered because it was God's will for them to suffer. Does that make sense? So, So Jeremiah, of course, Jeremiah was one of them. Okay, if we were to read the book of Daniel, we see Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were some people that that suffered at uh, not because of their own personal sin. It was no fault of their own. And and certainly there are others. And so Lamentations, it it tells us about this, this horrible destruction and this loss of life and and this starvation that occurred through the, the Babylonian siege all of which Jeremiah both prophesied about and he witnessed himself. 
And, and Jeremiah's intent in writing the book of Lamentations is to mourn a loss. Okay, it's to, to mourn a loss. It's to mourn the loss of a nation. It's, it's to mourn the loss of family. It's to mourn the loss of friends. It's to mourn the loss of, of even home for him. And so allow me to, to read our text. I'm going to read just the, the first 26 verses of chapter 3 of Lamentations. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to make some, uh, 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 some remarks about it uh, that hopefully will be helpful for you. So this is the word of the Lord, Lamentations 3, starting with verse 1 here. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. And surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true, that it's trustworthy, Lord and that it really is sufficient. And so, God, I pray as we, we look at what went on, God, so many years ago, God, that we, because your word's living and active, we'll see that it's relevant for us here today, God. And, Lord, I pray that ultimately, God, we'll look to, to Christ and we'll remember that it's, it's through the person and work of Christ, His finished work, God, that you saved us and you applied His, His actions, God, His person, His works to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. You sealed our election, God. You sealed our inheritance until the day we acquire possession of it, God. And I pray that that would motivate us to persevere in the midst of suffering. So give us grace, Lord, as we look at your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, the, the first thing that uh, we need to acknowledge is that sufferings are real and sufferings are evil. Sufferings are real and evil. 
Right? We, we, we shouldn't pretend that sufferings are good, right? We don't need to, to fake it as if, as if we're happy about it all. We shouldn't desire to suffer. We shouldn't desire to, to be afflicted. There's no glory in suffering. There's no glory in affliction in and of itself. It's suffering and affliction is a result of the fall of man. And we see that right out of the, uh, of the garden, right? In Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there if you want. It's also up at the screen. But the Lord says this to Adam. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so we, we see even in Genesis 3 that there's, there's pain that's been introduced. There's thorns, there's thistles in regards to, to our labor, right, and how tedious and hard it is. And we see physical death and we see spiritual death all a result of the first Adam's disobedience, right? We see that as the consequence there. It's very clear, right? What, and what those in Jerusalem are experiencing, it's not good in and of itself. Okay? It's not good in and of itself. Their destruction, the violence, the the starvation, they're, they're being taken from, from loved ones, the, their homelessness, Right? None, none of that is good, and it would be a sin to call it good. And what I want you to see is that Jeremiah, in Lamentations 3, he acknowledges exactly how horrible his experience is, and it's okay for you to do the same. It's okay for you to do the same. This is one of the things that, <clears throat> that I love about the Scripture, right? It, it, it's not neat and tidy. It, it's not sterile. It's not clinical. It's not emotionless. This is probably one of the reasons why God inspired human authors to write, so, so that human emotions and reactions and experiences could be captured. And in our passage this morning, Jeremiah, he's, he's raw here, right? He's honest here just regarding his physical and his, his, his mental state. Jeremiah, he's He's working through some stuff, and, and he, he's, he's not pretending as if everything's okay. Right? Everything's not okay in this moment. It's not. No, nothing would ever be the same for the prophet Jeremiah. Right? I even think of Job, right? We, we just sang, I, this, the set list this morning, I feel, I feel like really pairs well with the sermon. We just sang, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And and Job's kind of response of you give and take away. But I think about Job, and, and when we talk about Job, and oftentimes when we hear sermons about Job, and when we're thinking or meditating on passages uh, in, in the book of Job, we think about all that the Lord restored to Job, right? We don't think about the fact that all of his children that were killed remain dead. God didn't, he didn't resurrect the children that died. Job didn't see them again on this earth. He didn't. He, he was forever marred by suffering. 
Job's suffering was real. Job's suffering was evil. And believer, this morning, if you're suffering, it's okay to acknowledge the immensity of your grief. It's okay. It's okay to say that your present circumstances really stink. And for those of you that aren't presently suffering, I promise you that you know someone that's suffering. That God's put within your sphere of influence someone that is presently suffering at no fault of their own, right? There's times where we suffer because of our own personal sin, but what I'm spending time on this morning is suffering not, we're, we're suffering not as a result of our sin. And, and, and we all know people that are, are presently suffering this morning. And I want to encourage you, don't be Job's friends. Right? Don't, don't be Job's friends. They had really great theology, but they had wrong conclusions about Job because they didn't really pay attention. They didn't really listen. Right? They resolved to call Job to, to repent of some personal sin because certainly he, there must be this sin in his life that, that is a result of, of this judgment that they're seeing on his life. What we need to get better at doing as believers is sometimes just shutting our mouths and just sitting quietly, right? What we need to learn to do as Christians a bit better is to weep with those who weep, right? We need to be, as James talks about, we need to be quick to listen, which requires us to listen broadly and listen generously, We need to refrain from jumping to conclusions. We need to be very slow to speak. That's how you can minister to those that the Lord's put in your life that are presently suffering right now. The second thing we need to see is that it's difficult to capture our sufferings with words, but Scripture can help us. It's difficult to capture our suffering with words, but Scripture can help us. And again, we, we see Jeremiah's honesty in that he doesn't, he, and if I read through it now, you would, you would notice it, but Jeremiah, he doesn't even mention the Lord's name until verse 18. He doesn't even mention the Lord's name until verse 18, and I think that this could signify this sense of abandonment that, jo, that uh, Jeremiah uh, felt at the time. One thing about Christians who suffer is that unlike non-Christians that suffer, we have a book that can give us language or, or help to shape, if you will, our language on how we feel as we suffer. All right, listen again to some of Jeremiah's words. And I just want to think, for those of you that are presently suffering this morning, just pay attention, right? For those of you who aren't suffering, still pay attention. Don't check out. But language Jeremiah uses, he says, I've seen affliction. He says, I'm in darkness without any light. My flesh and my skin waste away. He talks about broken bones. And again, this is all poetry. This is emotion stuff. He besieged tribulation. I feel like the, like the dead of long ago. I can't escape. My chains are heavy. He, God, shuts out my prayer. He made my paths crooked. My teeth grind on gravel. I cower in ashes. My soul bereft of peace. He goes on and says, I've forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished. And then finally, when he mentions the Lord's name, it's in the context of saying, my hope in the Lord has perished. This is immense grief. This is immense suffering. 
And while our circumstances aren't like Jeremiah's circumstances, for the most part, our emotions may be, right? You may be identifying with some of that language that Jeremiah used to describe how he felt during this really awful, difficult time. And I do want you to notice, for those of you who are presently suffering, that Jeremiah's emotions do seem to match the magnitude of his suffering, right? It doesn't seem to be out of proportion. It's not ungodly to grieve as you suffer, but it is ungodly when your grief is overdramatic given the circumstances, right? It's, it's one thing for a, a toddler to grieve because his balloon slipped out of his hand and it's floating away, right? They get pretty dramatic about that. But if you as an adult, you lose your balloon and your, your grief begins to kind of match that of a toddler, there's, there's something a little, a little weird going on there. Uh, but the Scripture gives us, gives us language around our sufferings. It even gives us the proper handles to see what balanced grief looks like. Third, there's purpose in our sufferings. One of those purposes is that Satan wants to use our sufferings so that we may curse God and die. I had a 10-year-old kid come up to me with a a note after the first service this morning that says, what does curse God mean? So i got to think about that a little bit more. But Satan wants to use our suffering so that we may curse God and die. Right? That, there, there's, there is purpose behind your sufferings. And we're going to talk about God's purpose behind your sufferings in, in a minute, but it's important to acknowledge that Satan has a purpose behind your sufferings as well. Right? I, I think that we see Satan even tempting Jeremiah to the point of despair, even in, in, in our passage, right? I think Jeremiah's grief begins to potentially venture into sin. At one point in our text, he, he calls God a bear. He calls God a lion. Right? He begins to kind of name call God. Verses 10 and 11, he's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and he tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. And certainly we see something similar with Job's wife, when she decides that she's going to give counsel to her husband, <clears throat> right? Job 2.9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's her counsel to suffering Job. This is Satan's purpose in the midst of your suffering, right? Satan wants to drive you to such despair that you, you, turn, you turn bitter toward God, and you turn bitter toward other people as well. Satan wants you to see God and, and other people as enemies, as, as, as threats. Satan wants you to, to brood and to turn inward and to turn defensive. Satan wants you to go in, in this self-protect mode. I got to protect me and mine, right? Satan wants to to isolate you in the midst of your suffering because he knows that if he can isolate you, he can can manipulate you easier. He can provoke you um, and tempt you to abandon your profession of faith. And some of you right now, you're, you're experiencing the effects of someone else's sin. 
That may be how you're, you're suffering right now. And, and you're being tempted to react to another person's sin by, ma- by committing your, your own sins, right? You're going to fight fire with fire, an eye for an eye type stuff. And you're turning bitter and you're turning angry. And, and, and you're, you're even beginning to be resentful. And it's just eating you alive. That's all you can think about. Just rolls over in your head over and over and over. Hear me when I say this. Nothing can destroy the vibrancy of your spiritual life quicker than bitterness and resentment. Nothing can destroy your spiritual life, the vibrancy of it, quicker than bitterness and resentment. Don't allow Satan to to use your circumstances to draw you away from the Lord or to draw you away from other people, right? The Lord even uses this. This is the beauty of our local church here, right? Especially in the small group context where it's a lot, there's, it's, it's a lot smaller than it is in here, but we have brothers and we have sisters that link arm with, arms with us and, and they're, they're in the thick of it with us and they're reminding us of who we are in Christ Jesus. They're reminding us that it is finished, it has been accomplished, that we're adopted sons, that we're adopted daughters of the Most High King and we suffer as an adopted son, we suffer as an adopted daughter, so keep the faith and persevere. Satan wants to lead us away from that. Hold fast to your integrity. Look to Christ, treasure Christ, lean into godly community. Don't grow calloused, don't grow hard-hearted. Fourth, God uses our sufferings so that we may draw close to Him. God uses our sufferings so that we may draw close to Him. What the enemy wants to use to drive you away from the Lord, the Lord's using to draw you to Himself. That's, That's God's purpose in your suffering, intimacy, and, and conformity to Christ Jesus. Joseph recognized this, right? If we begin to think of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, and he looks to his brothers and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? For good. For good. And the apostle Paul He reaffirms God's plan in the midst of suffering and even what we can think on, meditate on as we suffer this future glory in Romans 8, starting with verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing, right? The the scales aren't balanced. They're not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen isn't hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, you can't pray 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not a little bit of those things, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to His, to God's purpose. What is it that is for our good? He answers it in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of a Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, one day we will stand before God with glorified bodies. Johnny Erickson Tata I don't know if you're familiar with her ministry, but, but she is a, 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 she's a Christian, and uh, I grew up listening to her, her radio show, Johnny and Friends, and she has been a quadriplegic for a, a really, really, for most of her, her life. Uh, and she is also a breast cancer survivor, and when I was preparing for this sermon, uh, I learned that she was recently, two weeks ago, um, she, uh, they found more cancer in her. She had been declared cancer-free for three years uh, and the cancer's back. And, uh, and she uh, says this. She says that God often uses that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. God, God often uses that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. And she went on to say, uh, I found an article about her recent <clears throat> diagnosis. And this was her response to her recent diagnosis. She said, when I received the unexpected news of cancer... I relaxed and I smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. What good is it if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubts. I think Johnny has a good doctrine of God. And the doctrine doesn't just stay at this theoretical level for her. It's not this cold clinical doctrine of God. It intersects warmly with her heart, and it animates her person. And her, her theology of God, her doctrine of God, it produces steadfastness in our life. It, it produces perseverance. It produces, even in this age of, of cynicism that we live in in our culture, it produces optimism in someone that can't move anything. Jeremiah also had a good doctrine of God. He knew who was ultimately responsible for his suffering, and that was God. Again, think of Johnny's quote, God often uses that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. God is ultimately behind everything we experience, and we can rest assured as Christians that because God's good, God uses that which is evil and flips it on its head and produces good. And according to the scriptures, God is using suffering to make us more like Jesus Christ. In fact, to suffer, to suffer and to suffer well is in itself a Christ-like quality. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he commends this suffering Hebraic church, Hebrews 13, 13. He says, therefore, let us go to him, go to Jesus, outside the camp, 
and bear the reproach he endured. Right? Jesus suffered. And he suffered well. And I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that Christ Jesus, truly God and truly man, endured and suffered well. Right? Right? And if God didn't spare his own son from suffering, certainly he's not sparing us from suffering. Right? And to suffer well is to be like Christ Jesus. And Jesus endured. Jesus endured. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, our election is sealed, is secured. Our inheritance, Ephesians, Apostle Paul in Ephesians tells us, our inheritance is secured until the day that we acquire possession of it because there was nothing lacking in Christ as he suffered. So to suffer well is to be like Christ Jesus. Jesus endured, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in, in all believers, we can suffer and endure. So <clears throat> how do we get in this right mindset? How do, we, how do we begin to think properly? What exactly did Jeremiah do? What did he think on? Look with me. The last few verses of Lamentations 3, 21 through 20, or the last few verses of our text, we see the shift, and I'm thankful for this conjunction here. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's my favorite hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's where we get this from. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. A comfort, if you're taking notes, a comfort in the midst of suffering is to recall God's past faithfulness. A comfort in the midst of suffering is to recall God's past faithfulness. Jeremiah, I want you to notice that he didn't seem to emotively feel the things that he's reminding himself of. It's, it's not like Jeremiah reminded himself of God's faithfulness and he was like, well, that's it. That, that did the trick, right? He's still presently suffering. There's nothing that's changed about his circumstances, right? And oftentimes our emotions are lagging behind what we know to be true. So, so what we have to do is we have to persist in informing our emotions of what we know to be true. And what we know to be true is found in the anchor of truth, with it, which is Scripture. And the reason why the Scripture is the anchor of truth is because it was, it was written by an unchanging God. And so what are the, what are the particulars that Jeremiah reminded himself of? He said this, God's love never ceases. God's love never ceases. Even in the midst of severe affliction, God's love is there. And I'm going to teach you a little doctrinal, um, uh, something about God's character. And it's what theologians call the doctrine of divine simplicity. It means that, that God's without parts and God's without passions. And this is why that matters. It means that, 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 that God is his attributes. It isn't that God loves 
It's that God is love. So when you're in the midst of suffering, it isn't because God ceased to love you and now he's angry at you and he's going off the handle. God's love, it, 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 it never increases. God's love, it never decreases because God never grows or diminishes in his capacity because he's unchanging. He's not made of parts. He's not made of passions. God just is. He reveals himself to Moses as the I am. God can never love you any more or any less than he does now because God doesn't change. The Malachi talks about that, right? He, he gives us a little bit of insight into God's character when God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And then he goes and moves forward and says, therefore, here, here's why this is important. Listen up, people. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Praise God that he's unchanging. Praise God that he's not made up of parts and passions. Praise God for the doctrine of divine simplicity and that, that the Lord doesn't grow or diminish in his capacities. God is love. And if you need to be reminded of his love, we don't need to look any further than Romans 5, 8, right? God, he shows, he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Christ, we're getting ready to celebrate the incarnation. He wrapped himself in flesh, right? Truly God, truly man, didn't diminish any of his deity when he added his, the, the true humanity to his deity. And he persevered 33 years sinless. And he, and he suffered and he took the punishment for our sin that God preordained before the foundation of the world. And God, Christ marched up to the cross. He bore our sins. He took our sins upon himself. And then in exchange, he gets the wrath of God poured out on him for every ounce of our sin. I say this often, but there's no more wrath left for you, believer, if you're in Christ. No more wrath. Because what we get in exchange, because Christ gets our sin, we in exchange by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get the righteousness of Christ. We get the Christ person, his work applied to our lives. We stand in Christ so that we are accepted by God. We stand on the foundation that Christ laid. We stand on Christ himself. God demonstrates his love for us in the gospel. Next, God distributes his mercies every morning. He distributes his mercies every morning. God, he, he gives us new mercies every single day. He's equipped you with exactly what you need to put one foot in front of the other. Right? Similar to what God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds, I'm going to boast all the more gladly then in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Next, the Lord is our portion. Exactly what we need. Exactly what we need. The Lord is exactly what you need and he offers himself to you. This is Christ in you. It's just Christ in you. Believer, you enjoy union 
with the one who laid his life down for you. And he invites you to abide in him. Read John chapter 15. He invites you to abide in him. We just celebrated Christ being in us through the Lord's Supper last week, right? This, this picture of the gospel. We can take comfort in these visual means of grace. Right? God preaches the gospel to us through communion. God preaches the gospel to us through baptism. And the Lord can use means like that. He uses His Word. He uses other believers to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus, to remind us that Christ is in us, and to strengthen our feeble, shaky knees. Next. Waiting on the Lord is good for our souls. Waiting on the Lord is good for our souls. To wait on the Lord is to acknowledge that you're the creature and He's the creator. Right? As we wait what we're doing, as we wait well, is we're submitting to God's timetable for our lives. Submitting to God's timetable for our lives. Through waiting, we express our submission to God. And we can seek Him in the midst of waiting through His written word. He spoke. It's been documented. It is clear. We can speak to Him through prayer. And we wait. The Bible tells us that this is good for us. That this is godly. And then finally, Jeremiah meditated on the fact that God's salvation from our suffering will come in this life or the next. Probably the next. Probably the next. The Lord will deliver you. His salvation from your afflictions and your sufferings, they will come. Probably not in this life, but they will 100% come when God in Christ Jesus makes all things new. Right? God's, he's, he's brought a salvation for our greatest need, right? which is, was separation from Him, which was this, this great chasm between us and Him. So how much more will He take care of every lesser thing in our lives? He promises us in, in Revelation chapter 21, the first four verses, John gets this beautiful vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Believer, persevere, keep the faith. In the words of one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, God. God, I thank you that um, we get this account of Jeremiah suffering. And Lord, I, I pray for those who are presently suffering, God. I pray 
that you would give them the grace to persevere. You would give them the grace to recall your past faithfulness, Lord. And God, I pray for those who have people in their lives that are suffering. God, help us to love well, to listen well, to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day that we could come and gather and be reminded of the glories of the gospel through song and to work through your word together as your church body. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.